As we jump into our time in the Word, I want to ask you a question. It's obviously not one that is meant to be answered out loud, but just one for you to reflect upon in your life as you look back over the weeks, months, or years of your life. And the question is simply this. Have you ever been beaten down for doing what is right? Maybe you were beaten down physically, or maybe you were beaten down emotionally and mentally. Regardless of which kind it was, you feel both kinds of pain. For example, if you do what is right, but you are beaten down physically for it, you not only hurt physically, but also you hurt emotionally. There's a hurt inside because of the injustice, a hurt because of the unfairness of the situation. On the other hand, if you do what is right, but you are beaten down mentally for it, you not only hurt mentally or emotionally, the hurt is so bad that it actually hurts physically. A while back, I was talking with a young lady who had gone through a tremendous emotional hurt in her life, and she said this to me, I didn't know an emotional injury could hurt so bad physically. That was a very insightful comment to me. I didn't know an emotional injury could hurt so bad physically. For those of you who have been through something like that in life, you, don't, you need no explanation. You know exactly what is being described there. Our text this evening is found in Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas were beaten down for doing right. So turn with me, if you are not already there, to Acts chapter 16, and please follow along as I read verses 16 through 23. We are working our way through this chapter of the book of Acts, and because of schedules, it's somewhat broken up, but we come this evening to verses 16 through 23. We read, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, greatly distressed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let me remind you that this event took place in the ancient city of Philippi. Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy had been led there, called there, 
audibly by the Holy Spirit of God. While in Asia Minor, Paul received a vision from Macedonia, a man in Macedonia, who said, come over to Macedonia and help us. So the team set sail for modern-day Europe. Their first ministry stop in Europe was the city of Philippi. And when they got there, ironically, they found out that the man of Macedonia that Paul had seen in this vision, the man of Macedonia turned out to be a woman. What do I mean by that? Well, the first person to come to faith in Jesus Christ in Europe that we know of was a woman named Lydia. Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy had gone down to the river where there was a weekly prayer meeting. When they got to this prayer meeting, there was a group of women who had gathered for prayer, so Paul shared the gospel with these women. And verse 15 of this chapter says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart. She received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So it was a great start to the ministry in modern-day Europe. But whenever God is doing something, you can bet Satan will do whatever he can to mess things up. Dr. Harry Ironside, a great Bible teacher of years ago, used to say, where there is light, there are bugs. And that is exactly what we see in this passage. And so in verse 16, as great things happened at the outset of this ministry trip, as they go into Philippi and launch ministry there, Dr. Luke tells us in verse 16, Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. What's going on here with this? Well, in the ancient world, it was common for people to consult mediums for advice on things like business, marriage, etc., a host of life decisions. In fact... I'm sure you're not surprised here. This kind of thing still goes on today with frequency. There are literally thousands of people in our world, in our nation, who live their lives by consulting a clairvoyant or spirit medium who is supposed to have special illumination because of contact with the unseen world. Even more live their lives based on their horoscope, which comes from the demonic practice of astrology. The word astrology comes from two Greek words, aster, which means star, and lagos, which means word. Aster, lagos, or astrology. Astrology is the word of the stars. So some of us live our lives based on the word of God, while some people live their lives based on the word of the stars and the word of spirit mediums. Here's an example here in verse 16 of a woman who occupied that role as a spirit medium. You see, this is Satan's attempt to foul things up here in the city of Philippi. He doesn't like what's going on. He's already lost one entire household when Lydia and her household received Jesus, believed in Jesus, so he's not going to sit around and let this movement continue without some kind of opposition. And it's fascinating to see the kind of opposition he threw at the missionary team. In his book titled Demons in the World Today, Dr. Merrill Unger writes this, and I quote, Fortune-telling is the art of forecasting future events and reading human character. Fortune-telling, or divination, 
is usually demon-inspired. A diviner is usually one who professes to predict future events or to reveal occult things by supernatural means. Paul's encounter with the mediumistic fortune teller at Philippi demonstrates that not everything in fortune telling is fraud and humbug. Real fortune telling powers are demonic. This girl told the truth, receiving her knowledge from demons. Her commendation of Paul as a servant of the Most High God demonstrates the subtlety of Satan in gaining followers for later deception. Paul's keen gift of discerning spirits resulted in liberating the girl from her divining spirit. The incident shows how Satan frequently parades as an angel of light, especially, catch this, especially in the garb of religion, end quote. So that's what is happening here. Satan is trying to mess things up by sending along a demon-possessed servant girl to confuse the issue to the people in Philippi. He will use anything that will, will work to promote his cause. In the book of Acts, we see him trying to use persecution from the outside, division on the church into opposing sides, and sin on the inside. It doesn't matter to him which side he takes. Persecution from the outside, sin on the inside, division of the church into opposing sides. He is a masterful enemy because he is so so creative. That is why 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be sharp, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In other words, be alert, be attentive, be watchful. If we're not, we can be lulled into a dangerous, oblivious state where we don't even recognize what Satan is doing. Beloved, hear me. Satan is brilliantly deceptive in how he works. Brilliantly deceptive. Ephesians 6.11 says that we are to stand against the wiles of the devil. The Greek word there is schema. We get our English word schemes from that word. Satan has time-tested schemes. Time-tested methods of operation. Think about it. He has been active for thousands of years, so his bag of tricks is loaded. That's why we are exhorted to be discerning and to recognize his various methods of operation. In sophisticated 21st century America, many people, even Christians, dismiss the idea of Satan working through demons. So we need to take the biblical warnings seriously about the reality and the activity of Satan and his demons. But on the other hand, we need to be careful not to blame everything on demons. That's very common today also. I'm sure you've probably heard this, but through the years I've heard people talk about the demon of overeating, the demon of swearing, the demon of nail-biting, the demon of impatience, the demon of immorality. Oftentimes, that's just an excuse to dismiss personal responsibility. Understand that the flesh is very capable of sinning without the help of demons. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, 
fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now that's quite a list. And those things are attributed to the flesh, not demons. So we need to be careful not to blame everything on demons. But we also need to be discerning enough to recognize that demons are at work. Satan is at work. Satan has schemes and plans. Paul knew Satan's working works well enough to know that this servant girl was demonically inspired. Even though part of what she was saying was the truth. Verse 17, we read, This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. By the way, side note here, the Greek text doesn't have the definite article here, so the statement could read, it could read, They are proclaiming to you a way of salvation. If that is the emphasis that Luke is making, then the implication that this demonic girl was setting forth was that there are many ways of salvation and Jesus is one of them. They are proclaiming a way of salvation. That's a critically dangerous subtlety because there aren't many ways of salvation. There's only one. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul said, There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way of salvation, but it's possible. I don't want to read too much into the absence of the article here, but it's possible this demon-possessed gal was implying there are many ways of salvation. But regardless of how you take it, what she said sounded good, doesn't it? When you read it at first, doesn't this sound good? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation or a way of salvation. That sounds really good when you first hear it. She admits that Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy are true servants of the Most High God, and she admits they are talking about salvation. Doesn't that sound like good PR? What is she doing? Well, she is linking herself with the movement. Beloved, please hear this. Satan loves to do this because it confuses the issue in people's minds. Think with me about this. Satan confuses people by aligning with God's true servants. Satan loves to make things sound good so he can get a foothold. He speaks the truth one minute so that when he turns around the next minute and speaks a lie, people don't recognize the difference. They don't catch it. They don't see it. Paul knew Satan works that way. And that's why he was so firm with this situation. Verse 18, Luke tells us, This she did for many days... But Paul, greatly annoyed, greatly distressed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Why did Paul do that? 
Because the Lord doesn't need help or publicity from Satan. Let me show you this in a few passages because this is really confusing to some people. And, and those that really don't have maybe a high level of discernment really get all twisted up about this. Well, this seems so good. I mean, she's saying the right thing. It just doesn't make sense. And why would Paul react this way? Go back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, just to look at a few passages to illustrate this point or this principle. Mark, chapter 1, verse 23. We read, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, at first reading, we might think, This is great. I mean, this demon is affirming the truth. And that would be pretty spectacular to have a demon say of Jesus, You are the Holy One of God. That's a powerful witness, a powerful testimony. But that's not the way Jesus saw it. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Why did Jesus tell the demon to be quiet? After all, Jesus was getting free publicity. This seemed like a powerful way to make the point that Jesus was the son of God. In fact, think about it this way. Jesus could have let the demons proclaim his identity for a long time get the word out there, and then cast them out as an evidence of his authority. That, that would sound you know, pretty reasonable, a good approach to the ministry. That would have been a powerful way to prove the point. But let me say it again. Jesus doesn't need help or publicity from Satan. Look at verse 34, same chapter, down a number of verses. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. Now watch this editorial comment that Mark makes. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. That doesn't sound right. He didn't allow them to speak because they knew him. We might expect it to read. He didn't allow them to speak because they were confused. They didn't really know who he was. No, he didn't allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark makes it clear that the reason why Jesus refused to let the demons speak is because they knew him. They knew exactly who he was. Jesus did not want them telling the truth about him because that would only confuse the issue. If they tell the truth about that, then people think, oh, they're telling the truth. Then they don't realize when they slip in the lies. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. There it is again. Jesus sternly warned the demons not to say anything about him, even though they were telling the truth about him. I'll say it again. Jesus doesn't need their help, their PR. He doesn't want their help or their PR. Skip over to Luke chapter 4, from Mark's gospel to Luke's gospel, chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 41. It says, And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them 
to speak. He did not allow them to say that they knew, for they knew he was the Christ. Isn't this amazing? The demons knew he was the Christ, but most of the people in the society didn't know he was the Christ. So you would think that Jesus would welcome this publicity. They knew he was the Christ, but he refused their testimony because the Lord doesn't need help or publicity from Satan. He knows how damaging that is eventually. Now, as a practical sort of application or parallel of this, allow me to tell a story just to illustrate the point. It's not an exact parallel, but maybe it'll make a similar point. When I was on staff at a church in Florida years ago, one of my responsibilities was to schedule uh, musical uh, numbers. You know, people to sing solos, duets, trios, etc. It's one of my pastoral responsibilities. And there was a young man in the church who had a really nice voice, very gifted singer, and he sang for various musical functions in the community, such as graduations and weddings and funerals, etc. Well, some of the people in our church came to me and said, you know, this guy attends our church, and we know he's not a Christian, he's not a follower of Christ, but you need to schedule him to sing uh, just because of the quality of his voice, in spite of the fact that he, you know, he, we know he's not a follower of Christ. Well, I refused to do it. And to my shock, it became a really big deal in the church. I mean, a big deal. One lady in particular really got angry with me and blasted me for this stance. She said, you, Brian, you should schedule the guy to sing, uh, you know, sing uh, a solo because if we get, get him involved, if we let him sing in front of the church, he may commit his life to Christ. Have you ever heard that one before? Or that line of reasoning? I, t- I tried to explain as graciously as possible that the Lord doesn't need help in ministry from people who aren't following him. He doesn't need help from someone getting up there and singing a song of exalting Christ when he's not exalting Christ in his life. It's a contradiction. It just confuses the issue. I tried to say, listen, people who are there, who know this guy and know he's not a follower of Christ and know his life, they come, they're visitors. He gets up to sing. What does that say about our our church? What is that? It just confuses the issue. But sadly, some Christians don't seem to grasp that fact. That's similar to this kind of thing in Jesus' ministry and in Paul's ministry where there was this truth being proclaimed but from the wrong source, not the source you want it from. And Jesus, both Jesus and Paul, strictly, strictly hindered that or stopped that. Now back to our text in Acts 16. Since Paul understood that the Lord doesn't need any help from Satan, he wouldn't put up with this demon-possessed girl giving publicity. So in verse 18, this she did for many days, but Paul Greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Because Paul was an apostle, he had the apostolic power to cast out demons with just a word. I personally believe this was part of what he referred to in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, when he said, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you. The signs of an apostle. God granted the apostles supernatural power to raise the dead, heal the sick with a touch. Well, not only with a touch, sometimes with their shadow. Perform miracles, cast out demons with the word. 
We see examples of this throughout the book of Acts, and we've studied this subject in the past, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but just suffice it to say, God granted the apostles supernatural sign gifts, and when the apostles passed off the scene, so did the sign gifts. Now, please listen closely so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, and so you don't misquote me. I'm not saying that God has stopped healing or God has stopped performing miracles. I'm not saying that people today can't be delivered from demonic possession. I'm just saying that the evidence points to the fact that the methodology is different than what the, the, that when, than when the apostolic sign gifts were still operative and active. Today, God sovereignly chooses to heal people, do miracles, and deliver demonized people in response to the prayers of his people. But that's not the same thing. Understand, that's not the same thing as the gift of healing or the gift of miracles or the gift of being able to cast out demons with just a word. Let me illustrate this just from one passage. Go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. And notice what Matthew tells us about Jesus' work with his men, the 12 disciples who eventually became apostles. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. Now notice this. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now why do I point you to this verse? To prove the point that the disciples didn't always have these powers. You see, some groups within Christianity today teach that every follower of Christ can do these things. But understand that the disciples had been followers of the Lord for at least a year by this time. Maybe two years. So, this supernatural power wasn't theirs just because they were followers of Christ. It was specially given to them because they were not only going to be disciples, they were also going to be apostolic personal representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why verse 1 refers to them as disciples, but verse 2 refers to them as apostles. Every Christian is a disciple, every Christian is a learner. But the apostles were unique, a unique group given supernatural sign gifts to point to the fact that they were the personal representatives of Jesus Christ on planet earth. They were able to cast out demons simply with a word. Today, when dealing with a demonized person, we must rely on prayer and the instruction in James 4, 7, which says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But that was different. That is different than the way the apostles dealt with those kinds of situations. They just spoke a word. It's the same kind of difference between the gift of healing and God healing in response to prayer. Today, Today, there is no one alive. I have no hesitation saying this. Today, there is no one alive who has the supernatural God-given ability to walk up and down hospital hallways and speak a word for everyone to be immediately healed. If there was any such person on planet Earth, then he should go to Mayo Clinic, every cancer ward in the U.S. and around the world, and just walk up and down the hallways and empty the places. There are no people like that. But you and I have known of cases where God has healed in response to prayer. That's a completely different thing. Think about it this way. It may sound 
almost blasphemous, but when Paul came across a sick person, he didn't have to pray. He didn't have to pray for the person to be healed. Paul just spoke the healing or he sent a handkerchief to them or his shadow cast over them. Acts 14.10, when Paul saw a crippled man, he said to him, stand up straight on your feet. And then Luke says he leaped up and walked. That's the way the apostles healed, but we rely on prayer. So in Acts 16, when Paul, as an apostle, has this ability, he just speaks a word and the demon has to leave. Now back to the the text there in Acts chapter 16. So Paul simply spoke a word. The demon-possessed girl was delivered. So Paul did what was right, but he's about to get beaten for it, literally beaten for it. Verse 19, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. You see, this hit the girl's masters where it hurts, in the wallet, and they didn't like it. They they didn't care about her. They only cared about using her to make money. They should have been glad, thrilled that this girl was delivered from the clutches of a demon. Instead, all they could think about was their money that they weren't going to make any longer. It's interesting to note that Luke demonstrates what I believe is a slight sense of humor in these verses, or at least a play on words, because he uses the same verb in verses 18 and 19. Out went the demon, and out went the hope for profit for the masters. When the demon went out, their hope of gain went out with it. So they dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities. In verse 20, they brought them to the magistrates, and they said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Hopefully you can hear the prejudice in their words. These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Remember, there weren't even ten Jewish men in the entire city of Philippi. We know that because that was all that was required to have a synagogue, and Philippi didn't have a synagogue. So there were not ten Jewish men in this city. That means Paul and Silas were real minorities because they were Jewish men. There's some interesting historical background that adds to our understanding of what was going on here. Shortly before this incident in time, the emperor Claudius had expelled all Jewish people from the city of Rome. Kicked them all out, made them scatter. Philippi, since it was a Roman colony, would have caught this attitude of anti Semitism. They would have embraced this attitude of anti Semitism. This also explains why Timothy and Luke weren't taken before the authorities. Timothy was half Gentile, remember that, and Luke likely was full blooded Gentile. So only Paul and Silas, who were full blooded Jews, were brought before the authorities. Verse 21 says, and they, this is the continued, the accusations. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, to, for us being Romans to receive or observe. What are they talking about here? Well, Rome allowed people of its colonies to have their own religions. But they didn't allow people to proselytize Roman citizens. That's the law, these angry masters are hiding behind to use against Paul and Silas. They've come here proselytizing, and that's against the law. The slave girl's masters were upset that their business was gone, but they didn't make that the issue. Notice, 
because they didn't want to be seen for what they really were. Instead, they hide, com- they hide behind a completely different issue. Now, unless you've ever had that happen to you, you, you can't appreciate how frustrating that is. That is really hard to take. To be in a situation where you know that someone is attacking you, but they're, they're attacking you not really on the issue that's the issue in their heart. They're trying to find another issue. The real issue in this situation got lost in the shuffle, which is exactly, exactly what these, these slave girls' masters wanted. In their anger, they succeeded in shifting the focus off the real issue to another issue. Verse 22 tells us, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes. You need to see the out-of-control frenzy that's going on tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. Can you imagine what is going through the minds of Paul and Silas at this time? Remember, how did they end up in Philippi? God gave them a vision to go there. So all of a sudden, they're thinking God led them right into a hornet's nest. Everything was going so well. Their first contact, this group of women, women praying down by the city and, or by the river outside of the city and Paul shares the gospel and the Lord opens Lydia's heart. And then all of a sudden they're beaten with rods. Let me tell you that this, this really locked itself in Paul's memory. This is one of three beatings Paul referred to specifically in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. He knew exactly how many times he had been beaten. Three times. This was one of the three. And verse 23 tells us, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, it is so easy for us to calmly read over these words quickly without any emotion at all. But, beloved, think of this. Those words, those simple words, are filled with excruciating pain, and horrible disgrace. The crowd is cheering on the men doing the beating so that the result was intense physical pain as well as public humiliation. Then to top, on top of all of that, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. I mean, what an illustration of a ridiculous overreaction of these authorities. They commanded the jailer to keep Paul and Silas securely as if Paul and Silas were dangerous criminals. By the way, the word translated securely here in this verse is the same verb used in Matthew's gospel to describe what the officials tried to do at the tomb of Jesus. Tried to make it secure. But in both cases, God's power made short work of man's futile attempts to defeat the plan of God. And verse 24 says, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This inner prison was probably a dungeon of some kind, and in addition to that, extra precautions were taken by placing their feet in stocks. We know from Roman history, these stocks could be adjusted to force a man's legs far apart in a very painful position due to stretching and straining. So this looks like the end of the ministry in Europe. God called them to Europe, called them to Philippi, and, you know, one family 
comes to faith in Christ, Lydia and her household, and it looks like it's a dead end now. But God had other plans. And you know something? Nobody beats God. His, his plan can't be defe- defeated. The following verses make that abundantly clear, but that's for the next message. As we close this one, I want to leave us with a specific application. Most of you know this story. You know what's coming because Acts 16, one of the most famous chapters in Scripture. Most people know about the earthquake and, you know, Paul and Silas could have been, you know, walked right out of there, but they didn't. And the jailer and his family got saved, et cetera. So you know the story. So in light of that, please hear this application. Sometimes, sometimes God chooses to right the wrongs of life while we're still here on this earth. That's what happens on this occasion, as we'll see in the next message. But listen, sometimes, many times, God chooses to wait until eternity to right the wrongs of life and set the record straight. And that's a lot harder to deal with. Oh, it's wonderful when God supernaturally steps in and sets the record straight in life. But what if we have to wait until eternity. We want everything to be cleared up here and now. We, we don't want anyone to misunderstand us or think wrongly about us or wrongly assume anything. Jesus made an interesting statement that means more and more and more to me as time goes on. It's found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, and I want us to close there. So turn with me from Luke's book known as Acts to Luke's Gospel, Luke Chapter 6. Beginning in verse 20. Hear what our Lord teaches. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now watch this. This is really just a shocking verse. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Isn't that a remarkable statement? You see, if everybody likes you, and if everybody speaks well of you, chances are you're probably compromising somewhere along probably compromising somewhere along the line. If you stand for truth, there are going to be some people who don't like you. And not, by the way, not just non-Christians. Sadly, that's even sometimes Christians who don't like it when you stand for the truth. But that's just the way it is. If you do what's right, sooner or later, you will get beaten down for doing it. And Jesus is warning us here, if you want to be popular with everyone... You're going to end up compromising just to stay on the good side of everybody. 
And Jesus said, woe to you when that happens. Rather than being consumed with the idea of having everybody like us, we ought to be concerned about doing what is right. We ought to be concerned about doing what the Lord wants us to do. That should be our focus. But remember, if you do what's right, sooner or later, you will get beaten down for doing it. Maybe not with rods physically. Maybe verbally like Jesus talks about in here. And when that happens, beloved, we need to guard our hearts and guard our attitudes. It's very easy to get angry and and become filled with hate. Jesus, anticipating that, adds a couple other statements. Notice verse 27. But I say to you, don't disconnect this verse from what he just said. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. I know, I, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything when I say that doesn't come naturally for us. But that's where grace kicks in. These kinds of situations force us to our knees to depend on God for the inner fortitude to respond properly even when we are beaten down for doing right. But let me offer one final word of caution because I know how we all tend to be pendulum people. We take the pendulum from over here and we swing it way over to here and then we swing it back. So, so let me give this final word of caution. Let's be careful not to use verse 26 You know, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Let's be careful not to use verse 26 as an excuse for our wrongs and pass them off under the guise of, well, I'm just being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's very easy for our deceitful hearts to do that kind of thing. There's no virtue in just being disliked in and of itself. That's not what Jesus is saying. And certainly there's no virtue for being disliked for our wrongs. Romans 12, 18 says, If it's possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's our goal. But sometimes it's not possible unless we wrongly compromise. When we find ourselves in that position, we dare not compromise. Even though it means we're going to be disliked and maybe even beaten down for doing right. And when that happens, we remember the example of our Lord described in 1 Peter 2.23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's about one of the hardest things to do in life. It's just to commit yourself to him who judges righteously. That's really hard to do when you get beaten down for doing right. But that's what our God calls us to do. Let's ask him for the strength to do that as we close. Father, we want to quickly acknowledge that these commands, this call on our life is just not easy. It's not easy for any of us. It doesn't come naturally to us, even as those who have been transformed in our new creations in Christ. But this is the way you call us to live, beyond the normal, beyond just the natural plane, on a supernatural plane. And that stretches us and reminds us that we need grace, abundant 
grace, sufficient grace to live the way you want us to live. Remind us of that so that we will acknowledge our utter dependency on you, remembering the promise of Scripture that says you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We certainly need grace. So may we walk humbly before you in Jesus' name. Amen.